Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. The TIPQC annual meeting is just next week. We are at 85% capacity and registration closes at the end of February. This is your last chance to join in this unique TIPQC event, March 2nd through 4th. Register today to join us at www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, to find the registration, agenda, speaker information, and more. Today, Dr. Jessica Young, the TIPQC Maternal Medical Director, is joined by one of our annual meeting speakers, Dr. Tricia Wright. Dr. Wright is a professor of clinical medicine in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Health at the University of California, San Francisco. They discuss substance use screening in pregnancy and best practices for caring for this population. Let's tune in. Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. This is our Tip QC podcast. I'm Dr. Jessica Young. I'm the Maternal Medical Director for Tip QC. Today with me is Dr. Tricia Wright. She is a professor at the University of California in San Francisco and has literally wrote the book on opioid use disorders in pregnancy. And she is going to be one of our guests at our TIPQC annual meeting. And so we are so thrilled to have you here with us today to talk about substance use screening in pregnancy. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this podcast. I would like to start out with is talking about what interested you in substance use disorder and pregnancy and how did that become a focus in your career? Uh, Yeah. So I trained at the University of New Mexico and um, in OBGYN and and they have a great program there called Milagro and we'd rotate there as interns. And I found that I really enjoyed the patients and enjoyed taking care of them. And then I went off and did, after a graduating residency, I went off and did private practice for six years between Colorado and Hawaii. When I moved to Hawaii, I realized there was a huge problem with methamphetamine use in pregnancy. And there was really no place that we could send patients to that would take care of them. The University of New Mexico's program was so great as far as having just a great harm reduction approach and multidisciplinary. And at the University of Hawaii, I applied for state funding and started a clinic. And so I really self-taught with really good mentors. I had Bill Haining as one of my great mentors. And also Dr. Curette at the University of New Mexico helped me come up with a a plan for the clinic in Hawaii. And and so we opened in 2007, 
and I worked there until I left in 2019. In the meantime, I got board certified in addiction medicine, learned how to prescribe buprenorphine. At the beginning, it was mostly methamphetamines, and then the opioid crisis came along. And while Hawaii was somewhat spared, we weren't completely and saw the numbers of women with opioid use disorders skyrocket and treated a lot of women with buprenorphine and also took care of a lot of women on methadone and just really got involved. Involved in that, and I think being somewhat early in the and being around. Just when I first went to my first ASAM meeting, there was I think three or four of us, and since then it's grown to almost 200. So it's been great to see the field really explode and the interest explode. You have been a real leader in this field and have published a lot on substance use disorder and pregnancy and opioid use disorder and pregnancy. One of our statewide quality improvement initiatives is on the management of opioid use disorder and pregnancy. And one of the main components of that is screening and the importance of screening for substance use disorder and pregnancy. And so that's something that we have been educating our fellow clinicians and and hospital administrators and, and nursing colleagues on the importance of substance use screening. But why is that important? Why is substance use screening in pregnancy important? Substance use is just like any other medical condition that impacts pregnancy, and it's much more common than many of the things we screen for, including cystic fibrosis, even gestational hypertension. The whole reason why we have prenatal care is to really screen for hypertension in pregnancy and make sure that we ameliorate the problems from that. And substance use disorders is just as common um, as those conditions and more common than a lot of things we screen for. Uh, and with good prenatal care and good medical care, the outcomes with addiction and pregnancy can be just as good. But if it's stigmatized and not screened for and not treated, then the outcomes, just like if we didn't treat diabetes in pregnancy, the outcomes are a lot worse. Are there best practice recommendations for substance use screening in pregnancy? Yes, the um, as recommended by ACOG and ASAM in the what we've put out in our papers is really to do a verbal screening with a validated screening test, such as 4Ps or the NIDA quick screen. Or and the most important thing is not which screen you use, but just really following up the screens with a conversation. Even if the patient feels uncomfortable disclosing the use, you're bringing up the subjects. It's just like domestic violence screening. They may not bring it up immediately, but you're raising the awareness and you're raising the comfort and you're decreasing the stigma and really making it a no judgment zone. And that just really is what is the most helpful. What are some of the barriers to implementing substance use screening practice or guidelines in both outpatient and inpatient? I think one of the biggest barriers is lack of education and the feeling that there's so many things our new pregnancy 
intake visits are 45 minutes and it's usually not enough because there's so many questions and so many things that we feel like we need to address. And so I think both the lack of time and the lack of education on what to do, how to screen, and then what to do if there's a positive screen, how to have the conversation in a non-judgmental way, who to refer to, who needs referral, how to do an assessment. So I think those are all barriers, but with a good process in place, those barriers can be overcome. And we just need to, to work on overcoming those barriers. You mentioned stigma and discrimination as impacting that substance use disorder screening process, whether we do it, how we do it. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, I I often get the comment that they all lie to me. And the reason why they're lying is because they don't feel comfortable and there is real consequences to disclosing their use because of stigma and discrimination. And and it impacts on the personal level, on the institution level, and on the community level. All of these layers, if the woman is afraid to disclose her use because she might get arrested, of course she's not going to do that if she's going to lose custody of her children That's a real fear that has been played out many times. And then also if she has the fear of discrimination, I have actual quotes from um, my partners. I'll see that woman. I'm good at yelling at patients or she didn't show up for an appointment. How dare she? I really let her have it. Things like that. Or she's, I hope she loses custody of her other four kids. These are actual quotes from people I work with. And people pick up on that not-so-subtle discrimination. And of course, they're not going to disclose their use. So really working towards using not even people that are otherwise very non-judgmental, if we can change our language around substance use disorders and really use person-first language, it makes a huge difference in decreasing the stigma. Using a a person with a substance use disorder instead of an addict or um, an alcoholic, things like that, can really improve our attitudes and how we treat people. Something that I hear quite frequently is people saying, oh, my institution does substance use screening. We test everyone at their new OB visit with a urine drug test. Why is that not screening? And why is that not what is recommended by ACOG and other governing bodies? So yeah, that's a really good question. And one I get all the time also is why I don't recommend urine drug testing. And and the thing is that urine drug test, it's a point in time test. It just shows if the person has used substances in the last 24 to 72 hours. It doesn't show that the person has a substance use disorder. It doesn't show what their parenting skills are, are. And it also has a lot of, especially if you don't do a full urine toxicology. There's a lot of false positives, a lot of false negatives. There's a lot of medications that can make the tests inaccurate. For a medical review officer, it's a course and a certification. So really being able to interpret these tests is fraught with difficulty. And also it really impacts the woman long-term and her family. False positive tests have been used to remove children from custody and arrest women. So we really need to be very careful to not use a test that we don't, A, don't know how to use and B, use punitively. 
People argue that you're going to increase sensitivity by about 20% by doing this urine drug test. And I would argue it's at the cost of a lot of increased social involvement and social involvement's not such a bad thing, but really stigma, discrimination, arrests, child welfare, and really harming uh, the patient and her family. I'm sure you alluded to this, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but I have heard both from maternal and infant practitioners that concern that using a validated screening tool will miss people because they won't be honest or feel comfortable discussing their substance use. So a urine drug test is needed to avoid missing babies that could be drug exposed. Is there data to support this? And is there a problem with thinking about it that way? Is there a better way to frame it? Yeah, definitely. There's data that shows that use is discriminatory. Child welfare very much discriminates against women of color and families of color for child welfare involvement. As I mentioned before, a urine drug test is a point in care, and a lot of people use it as a proxy for child fitness to parent. And I would argue that unless it's needed for medical care, there's really not a reason to do it. We're really revamping our indications to do urine toxicology with a social justice lens because of it can be used in a very race-based way to criminalize pregnancy and also criminalize drug use in pregnancy and criminalize and also child welfare involvement. What are appropriate uses of urine drug testing in pregnancy? Because there are times when it's useful and helpful Yeah. So if the infant is going through what looks like withdrawal and we don't know much about mom because she's not able to provide an adequate history, the baby can be drug tested um, without permission. Mom should never be drug tested without her permission unless it's a medical emergency. So if she's having a hypertensive crisis and is not responsive, or if there's some psychiatric need and we want to rule out a a substance contributing to that, then those are legitimate medical reasons why we need the test. And again, should be done with full disclosure and permission. And then in the infant unexplained withdrawal, if she hasn't disclosed the use, knowing which substances she's exposed to may help plan how much time baby needs to be observed, things like that. And then also in recovery, a lot of women who are in recovery want routine drug screening to reinforce the recovery. And so there are legitimate reasons to be used, but it should, should not be used as a general screening tool. How has criminalization of pregnancy impacted our ability to implement screening processes that are fair and don't lead to further discrimination or negative outcomes? 
That's a great question. Yeah. So definitely anytime there's criminalization and pregnancy and pregnancy outcomes, it really prevents women from getting prenatal care, which we know ameliorates consequences or, you know, it's just like any high risk maternity condition. We, you know, as obstetricians, we're really good at harm reduction. We are really good at having people have healthy pregnancies that have all sorts of high-risk medical conditions and substance use should be no different. But if we criminalize pregnancy and criminalize pregnancy outcomes, it prevents women from getting prenatal care. It prevents them from disclosing their use. And then it feels like the urine drug test is just to catch women when they're not disclosing instead of providing care. And it really is an antagonistic approach to medicine when we should be inclusive and really working to reduce the harms from substance use disorder. What would an ideal substance use screening protocol entail? So I think the ideal is a questionnaire that is done at the beginning of entrance to prenatal care that is then followed up with the practitioner with a conversation. So using some validated screening test on the initial prenatal care and then repeated, just like we um, are repeating our depression screening now, or should be repeating our depression screening throughout the pregnancy and repeating the conversation, because it it is a conversation that should be ongoing. And then if the patient screens positive for being at risk, doing an assessment and having an integrated program or an easy referral program that can be used to refer women that need more help. The ESPERT model, which is screening, brief intervention, or referral to treatment, does rely on the practitioner to have some skills in motivational interviewing. But that should be skills that we're teaching all of our medical providers because it's so important for behavior change in any medical situation. So it's not specialized skills that need to be gained. It's it's interpersonal skills that we should all possess as medical providers, just to be able to talk to patients in a non-judgmental way. And then if they are screening positive and want treatment, just having good integrated treatment places that, that they can go. Unfortunately, there's not, <laughs> you know, that's We're talking ideal world, and and, and that's not possible in a lot of places, but it is definitely something that we should be spending more money on as opposed to spending it on the urine toxicology, but just really having the programs in place for the the families that need it. Having home visits available to all families, not just women who screen or families that screen positive, all families that might be at risk. Can you talk a little bit more about motivational interviewing and how that can be used to strengthen and develop the therapeutic relationship between the practitioner and the patient? Yeah, motivational interviewing is is one of my favorite techniques. It's basically very patient-oriented and really is a very effective way to facilitate behavioral change. It puts a responsibility for behavioral change back onto the patient and makes the, the practitioner much less adversarial. So they're just making suggestions for change and pointing out discrepancies between current behavior and future goals. And so the whole premise is just a lot of reflective listening 
and menus of options to change and just being supportive of the patients. And it's it also goes along with harm reduction, meeting the patient where they're at. And the acronym we use is ORS, which is just, if you think of a boat, you're just basically guiding the patient. So it's more patient-centered and less directive, and it has great outcomes. I'm really glad that you mentioned harm reduction because that's what I wanted to go to next. When thinking about harm reduction and motivational interviewing, what is the role of those two things in situations where the patient isn't ready to make change, where they maybe don't even realize that they have an issue or a problem? So exactly. So the premise of harm reduction is meeting them more that. And I would argue that prenatal care for a pregnant person is harm reduction because we're talking to them about things like if they're not ready to stop smoking and how we can reduce the harm to the pregnancy. Are you ready to cut back? Can you reduce the chance of secondhand smoke to your family or with thirdhand smoke by changing your shirt? Are you looking to nicotine replacement? things like that as far as tobacco goes. And then really, if they are still using substances, how can we have them do it in a safer way, make sure they have access to safe syringes and naloxone so they don't overdose. But if they are ready to stop using opioids, making sure they have access to buprenorphine or methadone treatment, because we know that really does improve pregnancy outcomes when they are on medications just meeting patients where they're at and realizing that patient goals are on a spectrum from doing nothing to complete abstinence. And what we're trying to do is just reduce the harms when they are continuing to use or get them to where they want to be. Something that I think about with harm reduction and motivational interviewing is how it allows us to keep patients engaged in their care and making them not feel like they are being looked down on or lectured to so that they feel comfortable coming back. They feel comfortable talking about their struggles or what they're dealing with that is making it difficult to engage in all this change because change is hard. It's really hard. Yeah, you you put the nail on the head. You're respecting the patient where they are and realizing that the relationship is the most important thing. And I think we're learning this in the times of COVID and all of the isolation that we're all feeling. As humans, we're very relationship oriented and we really need to maintain those relationships and stigma and discrimination just really serves to isolate people even further. Pregnancy is often a time where people who are pregnant are really motivated to make change that maybe they wouldn't be if they weren't pregnant. How does that affect treatment during pregnancy and then once they're not pregnant, postpartum? So that's a great question. Yeah, as you mentioned, pregnant people are very motivated to change. It makes the motivational interviewing process so much easier. That can be a problem postpartum when they lose their support that they had from both the prenatal provider and sometimes even their families and things like that. The focus 
becomes more on the baby as opposed to the dyad. And I think really providing increased support to the dyad after birth, continuing realizing that pregnancy is just a a small portion of the person's life and really realizing that addiction is a chronic relapsing condition. So supporting the person throughout postpartum for the year postpartum or the fourth trimester, and also long-term getting them engaged with a medical home that can continue to provide them support for their substance use disorder is paramount to really improving their lives and the lives of their families. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Dr. Wright, for joining us today. This has been really informative, and I hope that it is helpful to our teams throughout the state here in Tennessee. And we really look forward to hearing from you at our annual meeting this year. Thank you for having me. This is my pleasure to talk to you all. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.